Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Maybe I should have killed four or 500 people, then I would have felt better. People say, Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. There must be something in that. I showed emotion. You know what people said? See, you really can't get violent and angry. Welcome to The Squonk and the Hag, a podcast about murder, mystery, the supernatural, and even a conspiracy or two. Dun, dun, dun. My name is Mo. And I'm Kraken. And this week we got a Krakow story. Hooray! More Krakow tales. More Krakow tales. So Brought what? to you by the power of construction paper and crazy glue. Don't forget crayons. Yeah, those two. Yeah. So what are you going to tell us about tonight? So tonight I've got the story of the Siege of Waco and a uh, another, I guess, prologue story before Waco. I will explain that later, how this kind of ties into it as we get into the Waco story. But the, first we have a completely different story. Sa- same topic, same line of train, train of here, but a couple years before Waco. Okay. Many, a lot of people have heard of Waco, but are you familiar with Ruby Ridge? Does it sound familiar? Have uh, you heard the name sounds familiar, but or? I thought it was something from the Wild West. I mean, no. So it's not like gunslingers and tumbleweeds. I mean, when you if you just say gunslingers, kind of, <laughs> but were they wearing like cowboy that. hats? <laughs> No, I don't think there were. I mean, the sheriffs might have been. But as many know, Waco was a standoff that lasted 51 days between the Branch Davidians and federal agents. The whole thing killed like 75 people, I believe, roughly. And uh, it, it lasted between February 28th and April 19th, 1933. But this one Wait, we're going to go 1933? to... 1933? You did it 93. again, 93. I did that again. Why do I want to go by that far back? We're not going that far back. 93. I wrote 93 and my brain still said 33. This is fine. You are upset. I wonder, we should do an in-depth what happened look in 1933? at 1933 because you were obsessed with it. <laughs> One of the frogs is from 1933. He wants to talk about his life history, apparently. So, I mean. All right. So 1993. Nin- 1993, yes. February 28th to April 19th, 1993. So before that, we're going to talk about what possibly led to Waco happening, how it did, and why it went so bad. So on August 21st, 1992, federal agents got into an 11-day standoff against Randy Weaver, his wife, and five children, along with his friend Kevin Harris. For several years, the local authorities, along with the FBI and ATF, and even the Secret Service at one point, were investigating this man. He was a college dropout. He served for three years as a Green Beret U.S. Army engineer. He and his wife were what were known as religious fundamentalists, and they had a strong distrust in the government. So, your stereotypical doomsday preppers. Okay, so... This guy must have done something pretty wicked because, like, so far he sounds like a weirdo, you know, maybe fringe of society type thing, but nothing that warrants a standoff. 
Yeah, th this is no another one of the stories, which is, it's very similar to Waco. It, it was a lot of miscommunication, and then even still, we don't know the full story, even today, of exactly what happened. We only have government reports, people saying this person did this, but actually they did this. It was a lot of he said, she said kind of stuff going on, so we don't really know which story is true. We just kind of have their background and what happened. Mm -hmm. But... They, they had a strong distrust of the government, and they believed that the apocalypse was near. They even hoarded guns and planned to move off-grid. Uh, in 19... I'm going to make sure I got this date right, because now you've got me paranoid with my dates. 1933? Um, yeah, 1933. I have... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's about right with my timeline. Yes, that's correct. In 1984, Randy and his family moved off into Ruby Ridge, into this cabin that they had built. It overlooked Ruby Creek, and uh, just only outside of Idaho. It was a border community that was really close to, like, Canada. This cabin, they chose not to have electricity or running water, so it was very, very rustic. There's this so just, like, living off the land kind of thing. Similar to the Unabomber. Kind of, sort of, yeah. You know, completely off-grid, in the wilderness, no electricity, just kind of taken. Yeah, but they seemed to be, like, making a pretty decent life out there. Like, it wasn't full-on caveman like they had a like i've seen photos and stuff and even recreations of it from the the paramount show uh waco that that was released the little limited series because they talk a bit about ruby ridge in the beginning as well mm -hmm. and, um, the recreation of the cabin like it's a it's a nice little little cabin it's not just like a they shack had, that's they had a good together. life it's just that they didn't have yeah. modern amenities I know I said the Secret Service became involved. Well, the FBI and Secret Service got involved when uh, Randy, according to a neighbor, now it was alleged that Randy got into an argument with his neighbor, and the neighbor then went and tipped off the FBI and Secret Service that uh, Randy had threatened then-President Ronald Reagan, as well as other government officials. They began to investigate. Yeah, so we don't know if it was just a neighbor issue and he just told the FBI and Secret Service this to get back at him or if he actually threatened them or anything. But they investigated and didn't file any charges, so I guess nothing was serious there. But they did document that Randy had ties to the Aryan Nation, a white supremacist group. Probably not a um, good group to get involved with. Yeah, no. But Randy would later deny his involvement with this group. And in 1989, undercover ATF agents claimed that Randy sold them illegal sawed-off shotguns. So this was the, the big thing for the ATF and everything to kind of get involved, because a lot of people say that the ATF bought them from him like he had already made them and had them. Some people say that the ATF coaxed him into buying it, even though or making these illegal weapons, even though he didn't want to. So no one really knows how that happened, but... He ended up doing it and selling it to them, even though supposedly he didn't want to. Um, so we don't know if, if that's true or not, but allegedly he didn't want to do it. And they offered him multiple chances to become an informant for them against the Aryan Nation to get inside information back to them and everything. But uh, he refused multiple times. S several sources say that he refused multiple, multiple times to make these sawed-off shotguns and do all of this, but was eventually coerced by the ATF. And he it's also... Hard, it's hard to know because... like there are corrupt officials and stuff like that, but yeah. there's also corrupt criminals who say that the system is corrupt. So it's, it's so hard to know what's true. Yeah. And that's with both of these stories. You don't really know what, how it went down because on one hand, yeah, you've got eyewitness accounts that tell one story and then you've got government 
documents and press releases that say a different story, so you don't really know. It's just up to you to interpret what you think happened. I know you like telling scary stories and spooky stories and stuff like that. Yes. I feel like stuff like this is far scarier. <laughs> it really is, because it, not everyone can just, like, sue the government. Like, what, what do you do? Well, I mean, we actually, I don't want to go into any details on it, but I actually know somebody who was falsely convicted of something. And yeah. if in order to take the government to trial, you That's pretty a much thing. Yeah. Yeah, and you need to have the funding. You need to have so much stuff and it's so hard when it does get into what you said a he should a he said she said because you know there's there's so much stuff and the legal system is fantastic until you know how to manipulate it and then if you have somebody especially who's on the the quote-unquote just side and the justice yeah. side and then they know how to manipulate the system. They know the loopholes. They know the different things that they can do. It's really scary that somebody who is completely innocent can go to jail. I mean, there are people who've been in jail for murder or multiple murders that didn't do it. But then you have other people who have killed Har you know, done horrible things, but they're like, oh, I didn't do it. You're lying. You're making it up. You're, And it's just it's so hard to kind of traverse your way through that and find out what's true and what's not. Yeah. And you bring up the, the whole corruption, corrupt officials, things like that too. And if you do succeed in the funding and getting the lawyers and taking this to court and everything with the corruption and everything, who's bought off who? Yeah. You still, it's very, I guess I would say it's rigged against you, so to speak. Especially you depending on where like you are. Corruption and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, it's probably a lot harder to buy off the uh, justice system in, like, New York City than it is yeah. in small town, middle of nowhere. Yeah, because bigger cities, you don't really know people. Like, whereas small towns, you might know the judge. Yeah. But right. Randy, uh, Randy refused their offer to become an informant, but he was indicted for manufacturing and possessing illegal weapons. Uh, but he got out on bail, and his trial was set for February 1991, but his probation officer told him that it wasn't until March 20th. So Randy missed his February trial, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. But oh, March no. 20th came around, March 20th came around the day that he assumed his trial was, he still didn't show up. Huh. So several attempts were made to negotiate with him, like over email during this following year, but everything that they tried to get him to come in didn't work because, you know, he doesn't um, trust the government and now he's missed a trial and all this stuff's going on. So how did he have access to email? I'm guessing he used like a public library or something like that. Oh, maybe. okay. I, I it like, didn't I really explain that, but like the way it talked, it's, it's, out in the middle of nowhere, but it's not like so far they just got to drive a few miles into town. Okay, okay. It's one of those things where it's like if you see a car coming down their driveway, they're coming to see you or they're lost. Yeah. So he missed his he missed his trial. The 20th came around, which was when he was told there was no sign of him. Um, so now the U.S. Marshals are responsible for bringing him in. 
And given his history of firearms and distrust of the government, they just decided that he's not going to go quietly, so they began covertly gathering evidence. They were sur surveying the terrain around the cabin and in the, the general area of the, the woods near, uh, around the cabin. And uh, during this time, the family became more and more isolated. They weren't leaving the, the property as much. They weren't going into town. They were just kind of living off the land and keeping to themselves. And during this time, Randy's wife, Vicky, gave birth to a girl at home and took care of her as best as she could, given their current circumstances. So I bet that was not fun. No. And the surveillance teams also noticed that uh, the Weavers were almost always armed. So they had planned to... The, the original plan was to get someone on the inside to talk to the family, make contact with them secretly. They were going to take a male and female undercover deputy posing as their new neighbors, but for whatever reason that I couldn't, again, couldn't figure out, there was no explanation for this, but that plan was never put into action. And of course, there's always something that goes wrong during all of this. On the morning of August 21st, 1992, the surveillance team was going, to, going out to do their usual routine, surveying the property, when the Weaver's dogs became aware of them. Uh-oh. The, the dogs, along with Sammy Weaver, his son, Randy Weaver, and Kevin Harris began chasing the team off of the property as they all scattered. We don't know who shot first, but this chase eventually led into a firefight that uh, left 14-year-old Sammy Weaver and Marshall Deegan along with one of the dogs dead. Oh, no. So after this firefight, they managed to, the Weavers managed to get back to the house and barricade themselves in the cabin while they decided what they needed to do next. So Deputy Hunt was was the in charge of the whole thing at this point. He was the he was like the, the lo, with the local police, and he wanted to end the standoff and get the marshal's body off of the mountain. So on August 22nd, he called for help, and the FBI showed up, assuming they were going into an active and unprovoked firefight against U.S. marshals. They got there. And at that point, the whole entire area is covered with hundreds of law enforcement officers and federal agents with the unusual order to shoot any armed adult on site. I feel like um, if you're trying to de-escalate, that's probably not the best strategy to take. I feel yeah. like hundreds of armed law enforcement officers surrounding the property is going to or, make things yeah. worse. You've got hundreds of law enforcement officers for two men, a woman, and a child. Two children. One of which is a baby. <laughs> yes. Like a newborn. <laughs> yes. And to make matters worse, they began uh, sending in snipers into the forest, and they began setting up a perimeter, trying to get him to cooperate, just to kind of keep an eye on them, making sure of where they were at, and they, that they weren't arming up and coming to the police line or anything like that. So now you've got snipers in the woods and hundreds of law enforcement agents all over in the forest around the cabin. I, I, I have no uh, idea how get... or why this would have gone sideways. This, you know, this... Yeah, I have no idea. So they were hoping to get him to cooperate, but he did the exact opposite and just ignored all negotiation attempts and pleas from his sister, who I guess they had made contact with. I guess they call she called into the police and was trying to they were trying to get her to negotiate with him to get him to come out, but 
everything they tried, he was just ignoring. Randy and his 16-year-old daughter, Sarah, along with Kevin Harris, uh, they went out to the nearby shed where they'd taken Sammy's body for whatever reason. When FBI sniper Lon, I'm going to butcher this last name, Lon Horiuchi decided to take a shot at them. He thought they were going to open fire on a helicopter. I mean, I wouldn't Randy, be surprised. Yeah, Randy was hit, and the three decided to go back to the cabin because this is not good. No. This is the part that kind of upset me a little bit. When they got to the cabin, Horiuchi fired again in an attempt to hit Kevin Harris. Now, they said that his biggest mistake for this sniper, he was never arrested or anything for this, but he did get some indictments and get told off for it, basically, which wasn't enough, I feel, but he was trying to shoot Sammy, or they, they said that uh, he was indicted for all of this because he was firing at someone who was fleeing, but he attempted to hit Kevin Harris, but Vicki Weaver, who was behind the, the front door holding her newborn daughter, the bullet hit went through the door and hit her in the face instead, Vicky. Yeah, Evan that... also got injured from the debris, but Vicky got the got the shot instead. Like again, this is a tough one because yeah. you know, you're you're in this heightened situation which shouldn't be where it is, and you have somebody who yes, they were told to shoot any armed adult, however, they were fleeing. He is a sniper who missed and shot a woman in the face. Yes. Like, I, I don't I don't like any of this. I, I really don't like any of this. And I don't know, I feel like, and maybe we'll talk about this, but I feel like so many of these situations, if somebody had gotten the right help earlier in the process, somebody had done something to you know, calmed them down, de-escalate, or they had, you know, been able to just go off and be alone and whatever, that, you know, maybe this never would have happened. Yeah, there, there's, with Waco and this one, things could have gone so much differently and could have been, I don't want to say handled better, because, like, I have no idea, but... But handled differently. From, from the information that I have, I see another way that a lot of people say that it could have been handled this way and it would have been a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. But things happened the way they did, unfortunately. Yeah. So during this whole standoff, there were hundreds of people that were there along the road. They were there to protest the government's actions. And when they learned of the deaths of Sammy and Vicky, they became extremely angry. So now the FBI, the, all the law enforcement officers have to, to control this crowd and try to get Randy out of the house. And so just his, his son and his wife are dead. So I'm sure he's, yeah. he's not and a happy camper. Yeah, during, until, all the way up until the standoff ended, uh, Vicky's body would remain in the house as well as Sammy's body in the shed. So they've got all these protesters to to keep calm, I guess is the word, even though they're not very happy with what's going on. So the FBI approached Special Forces soldier Bo Gritz, and they wanted to ask him to record a message. First of all, that that name though, that that's Bo Gritz. A, that's that's a name. Mm-hmm. G R I T Z, Bo Gritz. Oh, it's not even. See, so it's like the yeah. the super extreme grits it, yeah it's the, the the fancy fancy version probably have like nacho cheese or something he was uh apparently from what i gathered 
he was a, a friend of Randy. Like they, they knew each other from uh, Randy's time in the service and they wanted to get him to record a message to Randy in an attempt to get him to surrender. But Bo decided to come down on scene and approach the cabin to talk to Randy face to face. And uh, so he got that. He got there and talked with him and uh, he finally convinced Randy on August 30th to send out Kevin, who was badly injured, along with the body of his wife, Vicky, while the re- he and the rest of the family, Randy and the rest of the family remained inside. They got that far on the 30th. And then the following day, they finally convinced Randy and the rest of the family to leave the cabin, ending everything. So no one else died or got injured because of that. But still, uh, they, they said that they were surprised that Randy gave up when he did because he had vowed to die before giving himself up. Oh, wow. his daughters. Yeah, his, his daughters were handed over to relatives. And despite being charged with murder, conspiracy, and a handful of other crimes, he was only convicted of failing to appear in court for his original weapons charge. He was eventually cleared of all charges, and Randy and his three daughters were awarded $3.1 million for the loss of Sammy and Vicky. I know money doesn't ever replace something like that, but I... I uh, I I just, like... it It doesn't replace people, but that tells me that they, they were just like, yeah, we messed up. Yeah, they're like, we were in the... Because the government doesn't pay out like that unless they were wrong. Yeah, and I know there's tons of interviews and news footage from this that you can find anywhere just looking it up on YouTube. You can find all sorts of stuff about it. And again, along with the, the Paramount limited series that they did, it showed the first episode, or the opening scene is Ruby Ridge during the standoff, but... I'll have to check That's that why out. I felt the need to include this in was because it, it does tie in when you get into Waco a little more. No one really got any serious charges from this on either side. Uh, like I said, the, the sniper that was responsible for a lot of that was uh, they, they indicted him and did some investigations, but eventually found the investigator. The, the person that was doing the investigating was like, yeah, he did all this stuff wrong. We're changing policies, but I don't see nothing nothing too wrong here. After all of that happened, uh, the the reason that kind of ties into Waco a little bit is uh, the reason there's so much so much footage of the the siege of Waco or the raid happening from news agencies and stuff like that is because for some reason there were news reporters on scene when the ATF showed up. Does anybody? A lot know of people why? think no. They, I don't think they, I couldn't really find anything that said, like, if they told who tipped them off, how they knew about this or anything like that. It was just, it just tells you that the reporters were there from what I could find. Right. Like, but somebody tipped them off. It's just, it hasn't ever been released. as. It's unclear. A lot of people think that since this being after the whole Ruby Ridge thing, that the ATF and the FBI needed something to make them look good, so they already had this case on the table, and they were like, hey, if we get news crew to film us doing this raid and saving all these kids, because the big thing with Waco was it was it was a child abuse case. They thought that uh, David Koresh was abusing the children that was in in the compound and all, and to an extent he was. He, he was he was not he was not a good man. And I'll talk a little bit more about what all happened and why they thought what they did, but they were like, we, we need something to put us in a good light and make people 
not hate us so much anymore after we did everything at Ruby Ridge and everything with that went bad. So a lot of people think that the FBI and ATF went ahead and told a few reporters that, hey, you should show up here at this time. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, the ATF that had arrived did not have their radios on them, so they had no way to contact headquarters. They were just there with no contact to anyone outside their group. I would not feel right about that. I, I would yeah. be like, hi guys, no. After all of that, uh, we go to uh, Waco. So since the, the FBI and ATF weren't too popular, they wanted to do this to try and win back the favor of the people. So they have this case with the Branch Davidians, which is a religious organization that described themselves as students of the Bible. And they were founded in 1959 by a man named Ben, I'm not sure how you pronounce this, Roden, Rodden, R-O-D-E-N. And it sure. was supposed to be an offshoot of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church that was founded a few decades earlier by a man named Victor Houtef. Houtef? These names. H-O-U-T-E-F-F. That's right. You've never seen movies. I've heard of it, but yeah, I haven't seen movies. I'm trying to work on that. I'm correcting that. Sometimes I really wonder how you... I understand not everybody is a movie buff. You know, I there are people who've seen a lot more movies than me. But I feel yeah. like you haven't seen any. I haven't seen a lot of popular ones, no. Not at all. I was I was watching the, the weird indie films that, like, no one has ever heard of. Okay, so here's... A, this is an out-of-left-field one. If, if, if you're in the, the weird ones. Have you ever seen Surf Nazis Must Die? Okay, now you've gone too weird. Now I don't, I don't know that one. Okay. I'm trying to find the the area. Because I'm not... I'm not a crazy movie buff, you know, I'm, I'm probably I'm in the middle somewhere, but I've seen a lot of movies and I've seen a lot of genres. So I'm trying to find the genre because you haven't seen popular movies. And you I mean, now if you get into the horror movies. genre, like I've, I've seen quite a few horror movies. That's kind of the thing that usually horror, suspense, thriller, that, that kind of thing. Mainly horror seven? though. seven? I want to say I have, but it's been years that I don't remember it. <laughs> I feel like you would remember it if you had seen then, it. Then, no, I have not seen it. I think I have it on my list to watch, but I haven't seen it. Because, so, like, I've seen the trailer, like, and I, I know about it. I just, just haven't seen it. I, I, At least I know what that one is. I can't with you. Yeah, I, I know. I know. Why can't you just be normal? No. All right. Anyways, sorry. Back to, back to Waco. Rant over. Yes, let's go back here. So... This church was founded by Ben Rodden. It was an offshoot of a different branch that was founded several decades earlier by Victor Houtef is what I'm going to call him because I don't know how else to pronounce it. Uh, so their group had moved to some farmland about 10 miles east of Waco, Texas. It was known as Mount Carmel. But around 1962, Rodden and his followers had already taken possession of this 77-acre piece of land the majority of their followers lived inside this large compound that they had built. Uh, there were several of them that lived in houses nearby, but there was about 130 that, uh, that lived nearby, not counting everyone that lived inside the building. Because in the building, they had like a full-on, a huge cafeteria, the little, um, what's, what's the word for it? The, the chapel area. They had upstairs, they had the wing for the guys and then a wing for the girls on one side like it was split it was like it was, it was a really big compound that they so, had built at this point was it 
it was it was a cult or basically not. i mean you could basically call it a cult once you get into a little more of what they did because uh they the, their leader that was on this let's let's continue as we get down into talking about their okay. quote leader and the the okay. person who's over this and then we'll talk a little bit more about everything that went on in there that is the reason why the ATF and FBI and all got kind of interested into this. Yeah, usually there's a reason that they get involved. Yeah. Things they, they kept things pretty simple. They were uh, preparing for the return of Jesus Christ, though through the 1980s there was a little bit of a power struggle within the church because, again, it was founded by, by Ben Rodden, but by the end of the decade it would become... A man named Vernon Howell would become the head of the community, and he would later change his name to David Koresh. Oh, See, that, that was something. Koresh that, wasn't his real name. No, his name. His name. I have the full thing with his name here. Give me one second. I mean, if my name was but, Vernon, I'd probably change it too. Yeah, his name was Vernon Wayne Howell, but he changed his name for whatever reason to David Koresh. I guess because it was. The Branch Davidians. Well, I was going to say, is there any sort of... I know a lot of times when you are in these cult situations that, uh, you know, if it's a Christian-based religion, they go to very biblical Christian names um, or whatever religion it is that they yeah, tend right. to rotate. I wasn't sure if David Koresh had anything to do... Um, I, I was not raised very religious. I don't know the Bible very well, so I wasn't sure if that was something that tied into that or not. I'm pretty sure it is because, like, a lot of the children that were in there had names, biblical names, um, like Isaiah, stuff like that, like different Ezekiel. They, 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 so it was, the names did come from Bible names. Okay. Uh, but, so they they sort of, it, it on the outside, it would look like just a regular group of Christians living in this big compound like yeah living in the compound and all that was a little weird some of the things they were doing but David Koresh at this point once he changed his name and became the head of their community he would begin taking what he called spiritual wives so this is where we start to talk about why the FBI got interested into this the couples that would join this church the the males had to commit to um celibacy basically and Koresh was the only one who could get involved in that sort of relationship. That was sort of their rule that they had. It was sort of, David described it at least uh, from the Paramount show with the little bits of information they were throwing in there too. He saw it as a spiritual undertaking to take on this burden of their quote sin and so take on the spiritual wives and they would be celibate, but he would not. He would take on that quote sin again. So basically the men that got involved had to basically give their wife to David for yeah. letting them stay here and being a part of this group. Yeah, and I know that there are so many studies about the cult mentality as well as the, the psychological manipulation that's involved. And yeah. I do know that it's it's not something you can easily be like, nah, I'm good. But still, I feel like I feel like if you're married or in some sort of relationship like that, and also I, I don't think in the Bible it is not a sin to have a relationship with your wife. But no. that's another that's another thing entirely. Yeah. But I feel like even if you're being psychologically manipulated, <laughs> like if you walk in and they're like, "Okay, here you go," I'd just be like, "What?" 
Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, though, what made this one different than, like, what you think of a normal, or I guess, I don't know if the normal is the right word. <laughs> normal but cult. What you, yeah, a normal cult. What you think of your average cult is, like, brainwashing, you can't leave once you're in. But no, they they were free to leave at any point they wanted to. They, there was nothing keeping them there. A lot of them actually left behind families to move out here to and live in this compound because they believed so much into what David was preaching. Because... There was even um, one one guy who uh, the, the whole Paramount show is shown through the eyes of David Thibodeau, who one who was very close to David Koresh that uh, they met and David got to talking to um, to Thibodeau and that's what he was known as. They just went by his last name, I guess, because it was an interesting name. <laughs> but he got to talking to him and basically converted him and got him to come out and live there. His mom, who was not very religious, wasn't happy about him being a part of this, but she was like, you know what, you're old enough to do your own thing as long as you're healthy. Yeah. I'm not 100% comfortable with this, but gonna let you do your own thing as long as you're alright, kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of interviews out there with him. He even wrote his side of the story in a book. I don't remember the name of the book right off. Again, the, the issue, we go back to him taking spiritual wives. The issue we have here and why the FBI got interested in it was because reportedly some, several of those spiritual wives were as young as 11 years old. Which is a very unfortunate, quote-unquote, normal cult thing. It's, yeah. It's horrifying. It, I don't understand... I mean, I don't understand any of it. Because, you know, as we said... It's it's yeah, very, very, very psychological, very, very deep stuff. But when your child is involved and yeah. they are that young, like I would I would not I would not be happy about a 16, 17, 18 year old girl being put through that. But 11, 12. Yeah, there are also. Yeah. So again, this is all alleged and just supposed because mm -hmm. this is just from what uh, other eyewitness accounts that there were some of his spiritual wives that were as young as like 14, 15 that actually he fathered a child with. Yeah. Yeah. Again, sadly common with these situations. Yeah. And, and it wasn't <sighs> just a matter of he, he just picked who he wanted. I mean, he kind of did, but it was sort of he would go to them and be like, uh, God has told me that your daughter is to be one of my spiritual wives. And that was that. Was I actually how that wonder, um, there's a show that I really like to watch called The Following. Um, mm -hmm. It was only, I think it was three seasons. Um, it's really good. It's Kevin Bacon, one of the guys from the X-Men. He played the, the ice boy uh, that Rogue liked. Yes. Um, <laughs> forget its name. Iceman? I, I don't remember actor names very well, but his real name is not Iceman. <laughs> Still, I didn't uh, think so, it was, but um. So, anyways, uh, it's about it's it's an amazing show, and it is about a um. So Kevin Bacon and Iceman are the um, FBI aspect agents investigating things and there's this one agent because it does have to do with a cult um that's not a spoiler like the whole thing is it's about cult hence the following so uh, anyway, okay uh but one of the other agents 
in her backstory is actually it sounds like it was inspired by David Crush where there was the the spiritual lives and she was one of them and things like that. So I wonder if that show actually used this as inspiration for that. I mean, it, it could have. Um, and while while you and I was listening to you talk about that, I <clears throat> went and I did, found the book that Thibodeau wrote. Um, oh. It's his own memoir, A Place Called Waco, A Survivor's Story by David Thibodeau. So I'm going to go out on a limb here. He survives this. Yes. Yeah, he's he's one of the few that, that did survive out of this. There, there were there were a lot that did come out of this, but again, the majority of them did not. Right. Um, but he was a musician as well as David was also a musician. He played guitar, I believe, and David Thibodeau played drums because uh, they both met in a bar, I believe. Thibodeau was playing drums, and David Koresh saw how he played, and he liked it, so he decided to gravitate toward him and convert him and bring him into into their their group as far as i'm aware that's how those two met and began to interact but apparently david thibodeau was pretty close to david koresh during this whole thing but after all of that not only is david taking spiritual wives he's got all these allegations of child abuse that's catching the attention of legal authorities he also founded a retail gun business because why not icing on the cake so the, with that, the ATF believed that they were stockpiling illegal weapons and obtained an arrest warrant for Koresh and a search warrant for the compound. A lot of people think that the best way they could have done this was David Koresh made frequent visits to the local hardware store to, I guess, to buy stuff for repairs on the, the building and to mm-hmm. make new additions to the building or whatever. But he had a very set routine and schedule that he was always at this hardware store at this time picking up whatever supplies he needed. And a lot of people think that they could have just stopped him and arrested him there and been done with it and then worked the rest out later. But they, a lot of people feel like they kind of rushed this whole search mm-hmm. thing. But on February 28th, 1993, there were over 70 ATF agents that showed up in SUVs. And there were even pickup trucks that to- were towing horse trailers that had tarps over the outside to conceal the fact that there are not horses in this wagon, but it's full of ATF agents. That's a lot of agents. Yeah. And again, I, I feel reporters... like we, we talked about this with the North Hollywood shootout, but now it's on the, the opposite side. You yeah. don't go into a situation armed like that unless that is what you are expecting. And I feel like if you overshoot it or you over overarm, over weaponize all that stuff, you're just asking for trouble. Uh, I know... This is going to be a very controversial thing that I'm going to say, but Chris and I have often talked about when people say about having a firearm for home defense. It's actually extraordinarily dangerous to yourself because if you come in, especially if you aren't trained with one and, you know, something goes sideways and bullets start flying... Yeah, it's, Whereas, it's not good for anyone. It's not good for anyone. Usually, like, someone breaks into your house, they're just going to grab some stuff and go, and stuff can be replaced. Right. Lives can't. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of on a much grander scale. If you're going to go in there with 70-something agents 
armed to the teeth with probably automatic rifles and grenades and handguns and uh, all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, they were they were fully geared up and yeah, so rifles, you're just everything. expecting so, like, trouble. They basically brought a small army to this compound. Yeah, so that means you are expecting a small battle. And yeah. that, like you said, it could have all been avoided. They they made a decision that they're like, yes, this is what we're going to do. And unfortunately, the consequences were terrible. Yeah. Um, and again, like I said, there were supposedly reporters already on scene because there's a lot of footage of the initial shootout that took place that no one's again, no one's there's another thing that no one's clear who shot first or what started the shooting. There's a lot of footage of everything as it happens because reporters just so happened to be there on the scene with cameras ready when they showed up. And that makes so me wonder again, uh, there's so much about this makes me wonder, but reporters are not trained in combat and no. you are putting all of those reporters in danger. Like that. Yeah, because... I will warn you, like, you again, you can look up all of this footage of everything as it happens. There's tons of footage of this on mm. YouTube. It is, it's not super graphic in terms of, like, blood, anything like that, but, like, there's a lot of violent things going on. It's, it's a shootout. Yeah. Because yeah. there's the one popular scene that I've seen circulate around. I don't want to say popular to make it sound like it's a good thing, but, I mean... Most viewed. The scene, the scene that comes up a lot is there's ATF agents who put a ladder up to the roof on one of the lower sections of the compound and to get onto the roof to go into one of the windows where they believed they were storing their weapons but as they go up to the window you can clearly see a shotgun blast fly through the window by his head oh god and they have to roll off of the roof to avoid it wow so the, these reporters were not behind a staged area they were right outside the building in the mix with the atf agents yeah that's scary that is scary they they surround the agents surrounded the compound and they started their raid again we don't know who shot first but when they attempted to make contact with the group that's when the shooting started and then it resulted in a two-hour gunfight that killed four and wounded more than a dozen federal agents oh wow among this six davidians were also killed during those two hours and this led to over 900 or nearly 900 law enforcement officials arriving at the compound including fbi hostage negotiators so again they sent out just about everything they had i believe even the military was called in at one point to this and they even showed up with tanks and armored oh my vehicles. god like tanks like yeah like uh, u.s military showed up with tanks Oh my god. So the hostage negotiators would attempt to... Uh, they made several phone calls with Koresh. They were in constant contact with him because it seemed that Koresh wanted things to end peacefully. Mm -hmm. He was trying to work with them, but it was just... It was taking too much time and they needed it to end. Yeah, I uh, I mean, if you think about... Like, it, yes, as a cult and everything like that, but those are those are his people. Those are his followers and his wives and all of that he doesn't want anything to happen to them especially the women not and children. to mention yeah not to mention all of the children that were in this compound as well during all of this yeah and when you yeah. look when you look past all of the the child abuse stuff like if that were out of the situation and the gun retail business that's all it was was just a religious group yeah 
Yeah, it's just that just barely made it onto their radar. Yeah, but during these phone calls between the hostage negotiators and Koresh, officials would state that he engaged in what they refer to as Bible babble and threatened violence. Uh, he also made it known he wanted to make it perfectly clear, clear that no one in the compound was suicidal, that he wanted them to know that they weren't planning on doing anything to themselves. It wasn't like a Jonestown or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to make it clear to the officials that, like, we're not going to do anything. We want to talk. We want to work this out. Eventually, over several days of these talks, he agreed to allow more than 30 of his followers to leave, though it was thought that around 100 still remained inside. But he released these 30 followers, and it says released, but some other sources say that they were free to leave anytime they wanted to, but mm -hmm. the, they basically were like, we're going to make a trade if you'll give us, because they were cutting off electricity, water, they cut off, they cut them off from the outside world, basically. They were running out of supplies. They needed food, medicine, milk for the children. Mm -hmm. So they sent out 30 followers in exchange for all of these supplies. Uh, along with the crates of milk that the, the FBI sent in, they had put listening devices into the crates so they could hear what was yeah. going on inside. So negotiations after a while eventually began to stall, and Koresh had offered to surrender if one of his sermons were broadcast on national radio, but failed to do so when it finally aired. That's what a lot of things that I found said that uh, they aired his sermon, but then he failed to give up. But then other things say that they wouldn't let him finish it and perfect it because he wanted too much time to to write all of this up. And so they released part of what he gave them, but they didn't want him to finish just because like it, it was taking too much time. They mm -hmm. couldn't spend all this money and manpower out here while he took however long to finish this. So I don't know how much of that last part there is true, but apparently he didn't come out after they aired what they did and what he gave them. Mm -hmm. They tried various things, like I said, turning off their electricity. They even engaged in psychological warf warfare by playing Tibetan chants over loudspeakers and shining spotlights through on the complex during during the night in, attempt in an attempt to disrupt their sleep. The FBI were already kind of a little hostile there with the, with the whole loud music and bright lights. Yeah, but at least... That's something that it's not, it's not harmful. I mean, it's, it's annoying. It's disruptive, but no one is physically harmed. Right. You know, no like, one's physically harmed, but if I'm not mistaken there, I, I could be wrong. So don't quote me on this, but I think there's a law somewhere that psychological warfare can't be used on civilians. I well, may be wrong I, on that, but... I feel like uh, certain aspects of psychological warfare are illegal completely now. There's certain yeah, things. Yeah, there's a lot of that that's changed, but if yeah. I'm not mistaken, at the time, technically they weren't supposed to do that. Yeah. Eventually, after all of this, U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno was convinced that Ash uh, was not going to give up at all and gave the, the go-ahead for the FBI to go ahead and break down the door of the compound and go in pretty much. So they did this at around 6 a.m. on April 19th, 1993. They began spraying tear gas into the compound. This was done by 
punching holes in the wall, breaking out windows, just every way that they could get gas into this building. They gassed the entire building. Uh, and the, the holes that they punched through the wall, this was done with the tanks. They would use the barrel on the end of the tank as like a battering ram to shove the, the barrel through the wall. And I believe it had a hose connect to it, connected to it that once the barrel was inside the building, they would pump the gas directly into the building. Holy crap. Once this all started happening, naturally, the Branch Davidians began to open fire. And for over five, uh, let's see, for over five hours, armored vehicles deposited 400 tear gas canisters into this compound through the holes in the walls or through windows, again, whichever way they could. Like, now, and tear gas, I'm trying to, that is, like, it's, it's not lethal or is it lethal? That's sort of a mix because there's there's different kinds. The the kind that they used it was specifically the technical term for it is CS gas. That's where it gets a little tricky because what happened after they got all of the tear gas into the building, no one knows if it was because of the tear gas, the gunfire, the flashbangs, all of that going off. But uh, several fires broke out in the compound. Some people say that. The Branch Davidians were the ones that set the fires. Others say that the flashbangs combined with the gas, the combustion and all of that ignited the gas. That that led to this entire compound basically going up in flames. And because it was an active, active scene, they couldn't get firefighters in right away. Like I said, there, there's several reports that you can you can look up if you dig around and find it. But we're it's several incidents that tear gas was the cause of several fires because there was a bunch of investigations into this afterwards, but it was revealed that some of the tear gas that they used was flammable. They did a later probe into the raid, which concluded in 2000. Uh, they found that the U.S. government did not cause the fire, nor did it shoot at the compound. So, I, I mean... I thought there was a shootout. Yeah, but that's just what their probe found, was that I guess they're saying that they didn't shoot first. Oh, they didn't I, shoot I, first, which is very different than they didn't shoot at all. Yeah, my, the the source that I got just completely said, and I quote, uh, a later probe into the raid, which concluded in 2000, found that the U.S. government did not cause the fire, nor did it shoot at the compound. That's exactly how it says it. So I don't know if they mean shot first, but I mean, they definitely shot at the compound. Yeah. Uh, though, unfortunately, uh, again, this big fire went on. You can yeah, there's videos and images of the place on fire it's just it was a massive fire yeah i've seen i've seen that so yeah. i was i think i was in middle school when this all happened so i didn't have a ton of exposure because i was still a kid we knew like i knew a little bit of what was going on i saw a little bit of the news but i wasn't bit, like super exposed to it while this fire is going on at around 12 25 p.m several shots were heard inside the building and so firefighters were not allowed inside due to the safety concerns with everything that's going on they were not allowed inside for another 15 minutes so by this time the compound was just so engulfed in flames that they couldn't do anything for it like if if they put it out the compound was still just going to be ashes even if they got it put out like the compound was gone out of all the people that were in this, which is what's thought to be around 100 people that were still in this, nine people managed to escape, but the rest didn't make it. Investigators recovered a total of 75 bodies, 25 of which were children. And many of the deceased 
were found to have been fatally shot, including Koresh. Some of the wounds were self-inflicted, but others were not. So it appears that once the building caught on fire, uh, a lot of people in there did take their own life to avoid being burned alive, basically. Well, I will say that they have shown uh, burning alive is the most painful way to die. So I would say uh, that would have been the most sensical way out to spare yourself that pain. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard about what happens to your body if you burn alive, but it is excruciating. I can only imagine what that's like. Like that's that's one of one of my worst ways that I have in my mind to die. Like no, nah, I, I out of all all the ways there are to die, burning alive is not it. There have been studies and stuff about it because that is actually a method of protest in certain areas of the world. There are horrible images of monks burning themselves alive in protest of war and everything. And it is, like I said, the most painful experience that you could have in life. So, especially if there were children, I would say as horrible as it is, it was better to spare them from that, at least. Yeah, Whereas, and you know, if you have a single gunshot wound, it would be instantaneous. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go into the full story because I don't know everything about it. But like, you, you, there's tons of articles on it. But uh, I remember talking about the monks in Vietnam. They were protesting a lot because of the way that they were treated. I believe it's what they were protesting, and they mm-hmm. weren't getting anywhere. So one of the more well-known monks in there, that's was his way of protest. And he entered a meditative state, and his assistants doused him with gasoline, and then, yeah. Surprisingly, about the one with the monk was that he he remained like a statue the entire time, allegedly. Like yeah, I no I've noise, heard that no story. movement. Just yeah. Well, that's that's the majority, and that's about all I have for Waco. Unfortunately, how how things went down, I believe Ruby Ridge went a tiny bit better than Waco, but I, both both cases were not were not good. No, they weren't, and I think it really highlights how communication or lack thereof can just go so very very wrong. It was misunderstandings upon overreactions and escalations scary yeah i I think like from doing research and like reading about the story before i watched the 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 series the series does stick pretty well to the story even though you know it adds a few things onto it from what i could find but it does a pretty good job of not straying too far from the story it just is pretty not really graphic but it's you heard what we talked about like yeah. it's a well, little upsetting I've, I've noticed that a lot of the um, recreation type true crime stuff where you know it's it's a live action storytelling yeah. versus a documentary a lot of them do stay very very close to the facts because you know first of all a lot of people know the stories or at least the basis yeah, of they've, it. Yeah, they've got a lot to, to base the story off of and a lot of real-life elements that they need to create the script yeah. and all for this story to be able to stick with the real event. Yeah, and also, you know, people are going to call you out on your bullshit. <laughs> so yeah. if you're like, you know, John Wayne Gacy was a tall Grecian blonde, 
it's like <clears throat> yeah no, excuse no. me yeah the thing the only things really that they had to improvise that's noticeable is like we don't know who shot first but in the the series it shows that an atf agent got startled by one of the dogs that was in the pen nearby and naturally turned and shot the dog because he thought he was going to be attacked by the dog and the branch davidians heard the shot and assumed they were shooting at them and it was a lot of misunderstanding now that's how the show portrayed it but whether or not that's how it started in in during the actual event i don't know and what's sad is no one will probably ever know yeah, there's, there's not really any way to know unless somehow, by some miracle, you can find the first person to fire the shot and they come out and admit to it and tell what happened. But unfortunately, I don't think I don't think we're getting an answer to that. No, I don't think so. Well, Krakow, thank you for another uplifting tale. Yeah, it's a true crime <laughs> podcast. I don't think many of the things here are going to be very uplifting, but... Okay, fair, fair. But I know... Uh, I guess... When- when you did the the kill dozer episode, it's like, you know, you're, you're going, you're comical. going, you're going, and then you just end it on like the saddest note ever. That's that's the new formula. The, these the two stories episode. are just sad all the way through. They really are. They really are. Yeah. All right. Well, I will say thank you, Krakow, for your story. It was yes, sad but interesting. Sad but yeah, interesting to yeah. to see how everything happened. All right. Well, I will remind everybody that uh, we put all of our show notes up on thesquonkandthehag.com. We have merchandise available there. And I don't think we've mentioned it at all, but we did enable listener support on Anchor. So if anybody does want to make a monthly donation to help us keep the podcast up and running, we're not going to complain about it. Every, every little bit helps. Or a little bit helps. If you so choose. I think you can do as low as like 99 cents or something like that. Or like, like it's not. Probably something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that is there. And if you, like I said, we got merchandise. Krakow and I both wear it. It's amazing. They're very comfy. Yes. Very comfy. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> and with that, I would say, Krakow, you want to take us out? Krakow away. Okay, bye.